0: All right, good morning. Can y'all see okay if I stand here? I just like standing right in the middle, so got to be symmetrical. But how's everybody doing? Everybody have a good Christmas? All right, John chapter two. Go ahead and open up to John chapter two. And if you're familiar with the themes of the books of the Bible, who knows the theme of John? Jesus as the son of God. The emphasis that John is making throughout his gospel is that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is divinity in the flesh. God made flesh. And you see that just the way he starts out chapter one. It's the immediate argument that he makes and it's what he focuses on from beginning to end and what is one of the main tools that he uses throughout the gospel of John to make this argument or to present evidence that Jesus is in fact the son of God it's miracles 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 is one of his primary tools and if you think about the importance of miracles and just really the Bible, God's Word in general, why do you think the Bible is always under attack? What do you think is one of the main reasons that when it comes to miracles or any other aspect of the Bible, people are always wanting to attack the truthfulness of it? What do you think is one of the main reasons? People like their sin, don't worry, That's exactly right. People love their sin. People don't want to be corrected. The the, um, implications of miracles being true, the miracles that we see in John, are immense, right? Uh, Jesus demands, from the world's perspective, from a sinful man's perspective, Jesus demands too much. Jesus demands too much. Have you thought about what Jesus demands? Luke 9, 23, Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Think about what Ian just said. Sinful men love themselves. They love their sin. They love being in control of their own lives. So Jesus says, take up, deny myself, deny myself. That's exactly the opposite of what sinful men want to do. Take up your cross, like let your life be fully committed as a living sacrifice to God. And Jesus says to do it daily. Like this isn't just something Jesus says, hey, on occasion, I'm going to need you to do some uncomfortable things. Or on occasion, I'm going to need you to deny yourself. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, take up your cross daily. He demands it as a way of life. So you can imagine, as sinful men who love their sin, they love their lives, they love their autonomy, Jesus demanding that they take up their cross, deny themselves, and follow him daily, that is incredibly offensive. That is incredibly difficult. And the question becomes, who, what gives Jesus the right to make such a demand? And the answer from John is, well, he's the son of God. He is God in the flesh. That's what gives him the right to make such extreme demands on our lives. These are the demands of Jesus' In the Bible, and the main proof that John is going to use over and over again is miracles. Miracles to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, the claims he makes are true, and he has the right to make this claim to your life. And so because miracles are one of the main things that John uses to make this argument and to give us this proof, it's no wonder that sinful men want to attack miracles that they truly happen, the the truthfulness of them, because the ramifications are too large. Think about Genesis 1 and 2, God creating this world. Why does the world hate this concept that God created this world? Why does this world come up with so many alternative theories as to how we came to be? Well, it's because if Genesis 1 and 2 are true, and they are, it has tremendous ramifications. Tremendous ramifications. It it happens not just with the life and miracles of Jesus, but throughout the Old Testament. You know, one of the interesting things about Isaiah, the prophet, is that hundreds of years before King Cyrus existed, hundreds of years before he was born, Isaiah says there's going to be a king that comes up named King Cyrus, names him out, and says, he's going to let the people return back to, return back to Jerusalem. That has huge implications, right? That means it, it, Isaiah is true. The claims he makes are true, and the, the ramifications of that are significant. So when we see this, these miraculous things in the Bible, these supernatural things in the Bible, it shouldn't surprise us that so often it's one of the key things that people attack because there's major implications on every aspect of your life. If these things are true, Jesus truly is the son of God, Lord of all creation, and he has proper claim to authority over our lives. Now if you're a Christian, and this morning we're going to just look at, we're going to talk a little bit about the nature of miracles and just um, what miracles are all about, what is a miracle, and then we'll just look at the first example that John gives. John chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 where Jesus turns water into wine. And for us who are followers of Christ, these miracles are tremendous blessing. The miracles throughout scripture, whether you start in creation or you go even and just see the, the truthfulness of the prophets in the Old Testament or the miracles that were performed by the apostles or at any point in the ministry of Jesus, they're a tremendous blessing to us because they show us the power of God. And it's the same power of God that spoke this world into being that is at work in your lives. Isn't that a remarkable concept? Like you think about anything going on in your life, any component of it, your sanctification, the fact that if you're in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives within you to work, to make you into who he wants you to be, to conform you into the image of Christ. And when you think of the power that sovereignly overwatches your life, your circumstances, and just what is going on in your life and how he's working in your heart, the same power is the power performing these miracles. And so when you see the amazing things that God does throughout scripture and you see his power, that as a Christian should bring you incredible encouragement, incredible joy. It should strengthen your faith because it's God demonstrating the very power that is at work in your lives. And so you can go into any circumstance and circumstances get scary real quick in life, right? That's normal. We live in a sinful fallen world, Bad things are going to happen. It shouldn't surprise us when they do. But we can face those things, and while they're still scary and difficult, we don't face them the way the world does with despair and a complete lack of hope. We can face those things still with an unshakable joy and an unshakable hope because of the power of God that he puts on display and he promises to be at work in our lives. So I want us to look at just this first miracle in John chapter 2. And my prayer here is that understanding the miracles, what John tells us very clearly is what we've already said, that he gives us these for the purpose of demonstrating that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he wants us to always think of the implications of, that this has for our lives. Here's the theme. Miracles demonstrate Jesus is Lord and has rightful claim to lordship over your life. That's the point. That is the whole point. Jesus demonstrates, hey, I can make these drastic claims on your life because I am creator, God, Lord, Now before we dive into exactly what happens in John chapter 2, I want us to just talk about the nature of miracles in general. So that'll be part one here, the nature of miracles. What are they? What are they not? What are their purposes? And with most things, there can be confusion, right? Any kind of concept you bring out of the Bible, there's probably some wrong ideas out there. And miracles is definitely one of them. So I'll just give you two really popular misconceptions when it comes to miracle, right? A first misconception of what a miracle is, is that it's a wonder of nature. A wonder of nature. Like, has anybody ever heard, like, you know... They see a, a a baby being born and they're like, "Wow, what a miracle." Or they talk about uh, just something amazing that they see at like a natural park or something and they're like, "What a miracle." Have you ever heard people talk that way? Well, biblically speaking, it's not a miracle. It's impressive, it's amazing, but it's just how God created the natural order to operate. And absolutely, you don't want to take anything away from that because it it demonstrates the wisdom of God in the glory of God, in the power of God, and frankly, him speaking that into existence is a miracle, right? That in and of itself, creation is a miracle, but once it's there, it is simply just God's wisdom and providence and how he created this world to operate. And while it demonstrates his glory, and we should worship him and glorify him because of it, it, biblically speaking, and what we'll be talking about this morning, is not a miracle, It's just nature doing what God intended it to do. Another popular misconception when it comes to miracles, uh, they're unlikely occurrences. Unlikely occurrences, you know, like you're driving and you go sliding across four lanes of traffic and somehow nothing hits you and you just get out and walk away. People are like, wow, what a miracle or or you know it's like somebody last few seconds of a game full court shot goes through for the championship it was a miracle what a miracle shot no those aren't miracles i mean god protecting you as you slide across four lanes of traffic again glorify him it's his providence protecting you watching over you and he is worthy of your worship and praise for all those things he does throughout your life But those, biblically speaking, what we're going to talk about in a moment, are not miracles. It's God's providence, it's God's grace, but not, biblically speaking, a miracle. Let me give you a definition of miracles. This comes from Baker's Dictionary of Theology. And I think it's really good. I'll read it for you. It's sort of a lot of words, but then we'll go kind of piece by piece and break it down a little bit. Baker's Dictionary of Theology defines a miracle as an observable phenomenon affected by the direct operation of God's power, an arresting deviation from the ordinary sequences of nature, a deviation calculated to elicit faith begetting awe, a divine inbreaking which authenticates a revelational agent. So within this, I think it's a great definition, and I think it helps us come to grips with what is a miracle. Biblically speaking, what is a miracle? Well, number one, it's an observable phenomenon. There's no question when a miracle has taken place, there's no question that a miracle has taken place. We'll see, you see example after example in the Bible. People might still reject God's authority, and people might try to come up with ways to cover up that a miracle has taken place. But even when you see people responding to miracles by continuing to reject God, they're just acting in outright disobedience. They don't deny that something incredible has taken place. There's no question. So it's very different. Think about what you hear today, like if, if you turn on... I don't know. I don't even see him on TV anymore. Maybe I, but like the whole charismatic movement where it's like, hey, this guy over here has a sore back. And now his back feels good. Like can you verify that? Can you, uh, I I still have a lot of doubt, right? Like when somebody comes limping down with a walker and then all of a sudden they toss their walker to the side, I'm like, I don't know. I doubt that was, I mean, they could have just been faking it. Who knows? It was, uh, maybe they didn't even need the walker. It's all psychological. There's, when you hear people talk about miracles today, would you agree with me? There's a tremendous room for doubt whenever you hear somebody saying i performed a miracle we all sit back and say yeah right would y'all agree with that that doesn't happen in the bible when miracles take take place right lazarus was lazarus verifiably dead no doubt about it, right? He had been in the tomb. He had been in the tomb a few days. Everybody, there's no question in their mind he is dead. In fact, when Jesus says, I'm going to bring him back to life, everybody's like, wait a second. He's going to be real stinky at this point because we know he is dead. And is there any question that Lazarus is very instantly brought back to perfect life? No, like there's no nobody sitting around when Lazarus comes out of that Lazarus comes out of that tomb, can in any way doubt that incredible miracle has just taken place. When was the last time y'all saw that happen? That's it's very different from what people claim as miracles today, is it not? Or think about when Jesus heals the blind man in John chapter nine. This, this isn't somebody who's like, hey, my vision's kind of blurry. Hey, I kind of got pink eye. Hey, I kind of, uh, it's, uh, I got like, I don't know how the correct numbers go. I got like 20, 10 vision. It's not that. This is somebody who is blind. Blind, sees absolutely nothing, and in a very moment, Christ gives him perfect vision. It is verifiable, undeniable. There's no questioning what takes happen. As we're going to see um, This morning in John chapter 2, Jesus is going to put H2O, water, into some pots. He's going to have some other people do it. and In an instant, that is going to become wine. And there's no question in anybody's mind that an incredible miracle has taken place. The second key component to our definition of a miracle, it's an observable phenomenon that is brought about by God's power. God very often throughout scripture uses human agents for his miracles, but God is the source and the power, and there's never any confusion about that. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called by God to deliver the people of Israel from Pharaoh, and God knows that Pharaoh's not simply going to just let these people walk out of Egypt, right? God knows that some miracles are going to need to take place. And Moses is going to be the agent through which God performs these miracles. But is the source of the power and the miracles from Moses or from God? Very clearly from God. Exodus 3.20 Um, If you look at, listen to Exodus 3.20, see how there's no mistaking the source of the power of these miracles. God says, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my miracles, which I shall do in the midst of it. And after that, he will let you go. God's making it really clear. Moses is simply the agent. God is using these miracles to verify and prove that Moses is his mouthpiece but the power and the miracles are from God. Miracles are an observable phenomenon affected by the direct operation of God's power. And the next key, the third part to Baker's definition here, they are deviations from the ordinary sequences of nature. In other words, there's no natural explanation for what could have just taken place. You think about Lazarus all of a sudden after days of being dead, instantly being brought back to life, there's no natural explanation. You think back to the man born blind, instantly able to see, there's no like, hey, well maybe all of a sudden his body corrected itself. There's no natural explanation. That's why we say the birth of a child is not a miracle. It's amazing But it's just there's a perfectly natural explanation. We understand very much about the process that God created. Jesus walking on water, there's no natural explanation or possibility that a grown man can walk on a lake or a sea, right? That is a miracle. In Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man who was crippled from birth. And it's good to remember, we think, like, why don't miracles happen anymore? Well, I don't know. I mean, maybe they do, maybe they don't. But, like, why don't they? When you read the Bible, you think, like, oh, there's just miracles hopping out everywhere, right? But if you start to understand the historical timeline around the Bible, you start to understand, well, miracles are actually historically very concentrated around the prophets, like very much around Moses, some of the other prophets, very much around Elijah and Elisha. And then there's a lot of time without miracles. And then they get very concentrated again with Jesus and the apostles. And the reason is because miracles are being used by God to verify that, hey, these prophets and Jesus and the apostles, these are bringing brand new special revelation of God's word. And that's a very rare thing. And that's why we, we, uh, don't, I'm, I'm not bringing you any new special revelation from God's word. So I will not be performing any miracles for you this morning because there's no need to verify that I am an agent speaking on God's behalf, bringing you his word. But for the apostles, they were. And so that's why when you go to Acts and you see Peter and Paul in their ministry, they perform miracles. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter heals a man who is crippled from birth. And again, in an instant, this man crippled from birth is made well with no possible explanation other than the power of God. And so the religious authorities are not happy about this because just like they were envious of the, power, the ministry of Christ, they're envious of the ministry of the apostles, but they're not really sure how to deal with it. And in talking about um, this incident, Acts, 14, or Acts chapter 4, 16 and 22 says, What shall we do with these men? Speaking to the apostles, speaking to Peter. For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Again, this happened. We can't deny it. We might still reject the authority of God, but we can't deny the reality of the miracle. For the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing has been performed. There's no mistaken that a miracle has taken place. There's no natural explanation for what God has done. Fourth, it's intended to elicit faith. It's intended to elicit faith. We'll come back to this with John over and over, but John 20, 31, he says, talking about the miracles of Christ, that these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John, you don't have to wonder, why did John write this? He tells you very clearly. He records these miracles so that you will know that Jesus is the Son of God and so that you will believe in him and have life in his name. These miracles are written so that we may believe. John five thirty six. Jesus says that the miracles he performs testify that he is the son of God. John fourteen ten to 11 says, hey, Jesus says, hey, if you're going to not listen to me, at least believe me because of the works that I perform. Miracles are God's gracious proof to us that Jesus is who he claims to be. And lastly here, and what we've already touched on, so I won't go into it too much, uh, fifth component to miracles, they authenticate a revelation agent. In other words, somebody, a prophet, an apostle, or Jesus comes and says, hey, I am bringing to you the word of God. It verifies that they are in fact sent as messengers of God. It, it was the key piece to Moses' ministry, the prophets throughout The Old Testament, Jesus and his ministry, and the apostles as well. When Paul defends his, 2 Corinthians is all about Paul defending his ministry as an apostle. And one of the components of his defense is look at the miracles, the signs, the wonders that were performed among you through the power of God. Me being an apostle and bringing fresh revelation to you God's word it was verified by the miracles performed through me so to recap, here's Baker's definition once again before we start looking at John chapter 2 and seeing how that fits into this definition. An observable phenomenon affected by the direct operation of God's power, an arresting deviation from the ordinary sequence of nature, a deviation calculated to elicit faith-begetting awe, a divine inbreaking which authenticates a revelational agent. The miracles of Christ are God's merciful call to us to recognize Jesus as Messiah, our Lord, and our Savior. So with that, let's look at Jesus' first miracle recorded for us in John chapter 2. This is where Jesus turns water into wine at the wedding of Cana. Let's start with just the setting. The setting is given to us in verses 1 and 2. John 2, verses 1 and 2, On the third day, there's a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So verses 1 and 2 give us the setting. It's in Cana in Galilee. It starts on the third day. What that is a reference to is how chapter 1 ends. Chapter 1 ends with saying that Jesus wants to move up in his ministry to the, Gal- the region of Galilee. And um, so, on the third day, from him making this move towards Galilee, we find him in Cana. And we find him, verse 1 tells us, at a wedding. We don't know anything about the bride and groom or anything else about this wedding other than what we see here in John chapter 2. But it's a pretty fair guess that these were probably family members of Jesus or very, very close friends, um, because we find Mary, the mother of Jesus, there as well. So it's somebody who at least had um, a close enough relationship with Jesus and Mary to invite both of them. Um, And verse 2 tells us that not only Jesus was invited, but he was welcome to bring along his disciples with him. Like, hey, yeah, you got friends? bring them on. Bring your friends to the wedding also. Um, And so, likely because of that, it's somebody that was pretty close, either family or very close friends with Jesus and Mary. Now, are weddings a big deal for us now in our culture? I see some people, I see the guys saying not really, and I see the girls saying yes, for sure, which is pretty, I think that's probably pretty accurate. I promise you guys, it's a huge deal to the girls, all right? Like, They start thinking about this early and for a very long time. I would say weddings are a big deal. Y'all know how much people are spending on weddings these days? Like, it's a car, a nice car. Like, it's crazy. So I would say weddings in our culture, they're a big deal. But guess what? If your wedding ceremony stretches over an hour, people are going to be making fun of you behind your back. And usually it's something we go to for a few hours, and that's kind of it. So even as big of a deal as they are for us, they were a much bigger deal 2,000 years ago in the first century Palestine. And and, uh, this wedding Jesus was at, they would oftentimes go for days. Like a wedding ceremony would be in, in the event surrounding it stretched on for days, even up to a week. So a wedding is a huge deal in the time of Christ, even bigger than it is in our day and age. And we see in verses three and five, there's a crisis. There's a crisis at this wedding. What does verses three and five say? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So the crisis here is the wedding feast has ran out of wine. Remember these wedding. this is a huge event. It's a huge event in the family. It's a huge social event. It represents who you are as a family. It's an important part of your culture. And wine back then was a very important part of their culture. Did they have Coca Cola 2,000 years ago? No. They didn't have Coca Cola. They didn't have, like, I don't know, Fruit Punch, whatever. They even just good drinking water was very hard to come by, and so wine as a safe alternative was a very very big part of their culture. And so to run out of wine, an important part of their culture, at this wedding, which is also a huge part of their culture, this was really a major embarrassment for the family. And Jesus first hears about this problem. Verse 3 tells us from his mother Mary, when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they ran they have no wine. And Jesus gives a response here that gets a lot of discussion in verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. It's an interesting response and some people have gone as far as to say like that's very disrespectful. That's a disrespectful way for Jesus to talk to his mom. But there's no indication here whatsoever that Jesus was responding with disrespect. Mary doesn't give us any indication at all that she felt disrespected by the response of Christ. Um, And I don't think it was like Jesus said, woman, what does this have to do with us? I, I don't think that's what he said. Um, nobody here seems to take Jesus' words with offense, and she obviously does not take his words with rejection. The contrary, she turns around and says to the servants, hey, whatever he says to you to do, make sure you do it, right? Uh, so what Jesus is doing in this passage is indicating to his mother that who he is is, transcends their relationship is mother and son. You have to think about what is happening in John chapter 2. It is really a key transitional time in the life of Christ. This miracle inaugurates, or is part of inaugurating, a very transitional time in the life of Jesus. Jesus. From up until this point, he's been a pretty normal person, right? Normal uh, work with his parents, carpentry work. Um, We don't really know much about his life at all prior to this stage. Uh, And now he's making a major transition to this full-time ministry role that He carries out the rest of his life. And Mary had to begin from this point forward to see more fully Jesus as the Son of God, as Lord, as Messiah. And he adds, my hour has not yet come. Uh, These miracles, the miracle he's performing here in John chapter 2 and all the miracles that John records up to the crucifixion are not the main event. They're incredibly important, and they point us to the reality of who Jesus is. But the greatest miracle at all, the, 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 the most important event, is his sacrificial death and resurrection. And everything that happens up until that point in the life of Christ is pointing to that. Meeting physical needs through the miracles as great as they are, his greatest hour had not yet come. And again, Mary's reaction gives us no indication that she felt disrespected or put off by Jesus. Verse 5 instead shows us she expected him to act. She says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And this sets the stage for the first recorded miracle of Christ. Let's look at this miracle, verses 6 to 10. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had, come, had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. We see in verse six, there were six stone water pots, and it tells us that these specifically were pots there for the Jewish custom of purification. washing up before you eat. And these were big pots, right? Like 20 to like a five-gallon bucket's like that big, right? You've seen like the plumber's five-gallon bucket. So imagine four to six of those 20 to 30 gallons these are these are big pots and he instructs jesus instructs the servants fill them up fill them up with water and verse 7 john gives us the important point jesus says fill them to the brim he doesn't want there to be any confusion remember going back to like when it comes to miracles nobody can deny that something has happened there's nobody saying like, well, I don't know, maybe there was already a little bit of wine in there. Or maybe Jesus, like they were able to add a little something. No, they're, they're, just like Lazarus, there's no question something happened. Just like uh, Peter in Acts chapter 3 and 4, there's no question something happened. When God does a miracle, he, li- he, he leaves no room for doubt. People might still reject him. And reject his authority, but they're not going to be able to deny that something miraculous has taken place. So Jesus says, fill these up to the brim. And I don't know how long this took. Like, we read these things so often, you just read the Bible, and it just seems so simple, right? But if you're thinking, um, 20 to 30 gallons each, so up to 180 gallons of water, and I don't know, we're pretty spoiled, so we just go turn on the water hose, right? And like... They didn't have that. So I don't know how long it takes to get in this day and age to get 180 gallons of water. But it could have been a little bit of time that passes, right? Um, We might be talking about a few hours. But after filling these pots, verse 8 tells us that Jesus instructs the servants to draw out some water and take it to the head waiter. This could have been a funny moment, too, right? Because, like, I don't—it doesn't really tell us. What did Jesus explain to the servants about what he was doing? I don't know. Like, if, if we fill up these pots that are typically used for washing hands with water, and then you tell me as a servant, all right, I want you to go draw a cup of that and go take it to the head waiter to drink, I'd be like, oh, man, is Jesus getting me in trouble here? Like, I don't know. It sounds like a bad idea. Um But he does it, right? Um, And we see the result in verse 9. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, he did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. It's the miracle put on full display what had been water, H2O, God has powerfully and miraculously changed to wine. Not just any wine, exceptional wine. For obvious reasons, people tend to serve the good wine first and then wait, and once people are already feeling good, bring out the bad wine. But here, the best wine is saved for last, Now think back to the definition that we had here earlier of a miracle. Is this an observable phenomenon? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's completely observable. It was out there for everybody to see. Um, the servants knew they had filled water into these pots. And now it has become exceptional wine. Is there a natural explanation for that? Is there any other occurrence in history where H2O chemically is altered instantly somehow into wine? I don't know what the chemical makeup of wine is, but whatever that is. No. There's no natural explanation for it. Um, So it's an arresting deviation from the ordinary sequences of nature. nature. Um, How about the next part? Was this done... To elicit faith our answer in verse 11. Verse 11 gives us the result. Was this done to elicit faith? Verse 11 says, "This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Verse 11, Jesus manifested his glory. And many of his disciples, or his disciples, believed in him. As we think about how we are to respond to the miracles that we find throughout Scripture, the miracles that God records for us, why do you think he recorded these? Why do you think God, we talked about Isaiah, right? Like, Isaiah, I don't even 2,700 years ago, 2,700 years ago predicted King Cyrus by name would send his people back to Jerusalem, send God's people back to Jerusalem. Or you think of Moses just uh, 4,000 years ago performing these miracles. Why does God record that for us? It's so that we would believe. Why are these miracles that John recorded 2,000 years ago preserved for us today today? So that we too, just like the disciples who saw Christ on that day perform this miracle, would believe. That is the entire point of the miracles. That we would glorify God and believe. Recognizing Jesus is the one and only Lord, the one and only sacrifice For our sins. And we don't have to guess that this is the reason. I love how clear John makes it. Look, flip back to John 20. John 20 is where we're going to wrap up, verses 30 and 31. Because John doesn't want us to like read between the lines here to try to figure out why this is all recorded. He's just going to tell us. He says, therefore. He records a number of miracles, but he says many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This brings us to our end, our response to miracles, how we should respond. It's belief. It's belief. John twenty-one twenty-five. 25, the next chapter, he says, there were also many other things which Jesus did, which they, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. He told us in verse 30 of chapter 20 that there are many other signs. How many other signs, you wonder, right? He tells you in chapter 21, look, Jesus did so many incredible things to demonstrate his glory and that he is the Son of God. He did more than we could ever even record, recognize, and realize. The glory of Christ is infinite. As amazed as you can be as you read through the Gospels and God's Word, the reality of who Jesus is is even greater than in our wildest comprehension. It's given to us so that we may believe, recognize there's no life for us outside of Jesus Christ. He makes claims to be the exclusive way to the Father, that he is the one and only way to the Father, and he verifies his right to make those claims through the power that he displays. He claims to be the one and only rightful Lord to our lives, and you think, how can somebody make that claim? Well, he demonstrates that he can make that claim because he is Lord God, creator in the flesh. So our first response is simply acknowledge the fact that Jesus is who he claims to be. Second, repent, right? He calls us to repentance. By nature, we reject his lordship. His rightful lordship, by nature, we reject that, like we talked about. Our response when we recognize the lordship of Christ is to repent. Repent for rejecting his authority over our lives, trying to be our own authority, and submit to his lordship. That's part three here. Submitting to Christ as lord of our lives, Looking at his demand on our life, that he is rightful authority over every aspect of it. You think back to his call to follow him, to um, follow him and to uh, take up our cross daily. That's comprehensive of all of our lives. So when it comes to our school, when it comes to our friendships and relationships, interactions with siblings and parents, jobs that we may have, extracurricular All that is done to the glory of God under His Lordship. Fourth, trust in Christ alone for your salvation. It goes again to His claim to be our exclusive avenue towards forgiveness, our exclusive way to be made right with God. He proves that through His miracles fifthly and this kind of goes back to what i talked about with him being lord over all our lives apply the gospel to ourselves daily it's not something we just accept once and that's it it's something we accept once and our lives are radically changed in that moment but it's a daily application of these truths to our life that's how we get every aspect of our life brought under his lordship is by daily reminding ourselves who Jesus Christ is and the implications that has for every aspect of our lives. And finally, tell others. Tell others. Like that, uh, the disciples were called to follow Christ, right? We see that very clearly throughout the Gospels, that called to follow him and submit to him with every aspect of our lives. But along with that was consistently the The command to tell others and when you think to Matthew chapter 28 and some of the final moments of Christ with his disciples and the Great Commission it's the command to go out and tell others teach others the Gospels are filled with these miracles for our own edification and for our to bring us for our own faith and to strengthen us, but also so that we can tell others and demonstrate to others who Jesus Christ is. We just looked at one of them, but there's like John says, many, many others. And these miracles of Christ, they're God's merciful call to us and demonstration to us that Jesus is the Messiah everything he claimed to be, our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that who you are, you make it evident to us. That you don't require require of us making speculations or having a cloudy view of who you are, but you clearly manifest your glory. And I just pray that, um, Spirit, you would give us the gift of faith to respond to that in obedience to you, entrusting our lives to you, and just worshiping you and glorifying you because of the great power that you put on display, not just in the miracles and in the world around us, but even in our own lives every single day. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.